0: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, patients, families, colleagues, and curious folk to the PM&R Report. Our podcast is brought to you by the University of Texas at Houston in conjunction with McGovern Medical School and TIRR Memorial Herman, Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. We bring you another segment of medical explanation, reviews of current literature, expert opinions, debates, and just plain interesting stuff.
1: Good morning, everyone. My name is Saleh Sheik. I'm a PGY4 at the UT PMNR Houston program. And uh, today I'm here with Dr. David Simpson, who is trained in neurology and teaches at the Mount Sinai Medical School. Good morning, Dr. Simpson. Good morning, Seller.
2: Nice to be here with you.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Would you uh, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and uh, what you do um, at the medical school in Mount Sinai? Uh,
2: Well, as you heard, I'm a neurologist. And I have a number of subspecialty interests in neurology, one being neuromuscular disorders and peripheral neuropathies, particularly. And uh, quite interested in the field of neuropathic pain, which I just lectured on this morning to your department. Uh, I also have another area of interest in neuroinfectious disease, um, including HIV and AIDS, um, in which I was involved in the early 1980s with seeing and describing some of the first patients with AIDS in New York City with neurologic disorders and have stayed involved in that field. And then more recently, covid Related neurology with neurologic complications of COVID and COVID vaccines. And then finally, a third major area that I work in is botulinum toxin medication. And I've collaborated with some of your faculty, uh, Gerard Francisco, Cindy Ivanhoe, and have worked in the field of botulinum toxin treatment in spasticity, in focal limb dystonia, focal limb tremor, and uh, very involved with an organization called the International Neurotoxin Association, of which uh, I'm currently president.
1: Well, you have done uh, lots of things in your past. Um, So, your talk was on neuropathic pain, uh, but but before we jump right into that, um, you said you have studied uh, outcomes and, I guess, uh, adverse events from COVID and COVID vaccines in the um, neuropathic pain space? Yes.
2: You know, it's been a fascinating couple of years. Somewhat concerning couple of years. You might remember in March of 2020, New York City was hit hit first and hit hard with the US-based pandemic and our hospital Manzana became one one big COVID intensive care unit at that time, it was a pretty remarkable. Period, which all the doctors, no matter what field they were in, were being redeployed to help take care of these desperately sick patients with a lot of deaths. Sure. Of and course. Yes, of course, we knew, we knew nothing about it. I mean, in some ways, it reminded me of the early 1980s with HIV and AIDS, in which there was a new disease that we knew nothing about. And we had to figure it out as we were. Trying to take care of patients. You know, I'm very delighted to say the last couple of years and COVID has been a dramatic improvement in the state of affairs, including the advent of the vaccines and certainly this disease becoming not gone by any means, but certainly much less of a crisis as it was back then. Now, that being said, to your point, we have been seeing neurologic complications related to COVID infection itself as well as to the COVID vaccines and yeah, so that what, has been an area of interest.
1: What, uh, what do you see? Uh, do you have a post-COVID clinic or what does, your, what does your practice in this area look like?
2: Well, you could probably look at it in many different ways. One is, of course, acute COVID with sick patients in the hospital particularly in the icus in which patients can develop encephalopathies and other complications related to their acute icu and multi-organ system situations but then you've got the interesting more chronic post-covid patients and you are i'm sure aware of the so-called long covid syndrome in which patients report a whole host of symptoms from mental clouding, to confusion, to fatigue, to muscle aches, to burning paresthesias and pain. And many of these complications are not well understood. And they're an active area of study, but certainly we have been seeing these and have actually described some cases of patients with Guillain-Barre syndrome with other forms of neuropathy that do you seem to be associated with acute COVID infection? And then, if you like, we can even talk about the vaccine complications as well.
1: What <laughs> neurologic complications have you seen with COVID vaccine? I think I've seen uh, Bell's palsy a few times.
2: Yeah. Well, in fact, Bell's palsy was reported in the original. Clinical trials of the vaccines, um, there have been cases of Gambray, most commonly with. AstraZeneca and Johnson and Johnson, not so much in the mRNA vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna. We have seen some cases of neuropathy, including small fiber neuropathy, that we have collaborated with the NIH group on describing those related to vaccine. So the bottom line is the vaccine is extremely important. It is safe, and by no means should these rare complications dissuade someone from being vaccinated. But they're entities we need to aware of. That's right.
1: Absolutely. I agree with you. Yes. All right. Let's uh, take a few steps back. What is your favorite thing about working with residents and fellows? Ah, uh, good question.
2: Um, well, one of the joys of academic medicine, which I've been involved in for decades, is the teaching experience, and what I really enjoy about training med students residents fellows is one we get great people to work with i mean the funnel to get to that point of you know going through undergraduate education get accepted to medical school get into a nice high powered residency become a fellow you know you've got a funnel where the best of the best end up on my doorstep and it's inspiring because these these Guys and, and ladies are, many of them are superstars. And it's a joy to see enthusiasm, motivation, constant inquiry. And for me personally, it keeps me on my feet. It keeps me on my toes in terms of challenging them and them challenging me to really stay on top of our games so it really uh, it really adds dramatically to the joy of medicine and frankly for many people medicine is not so joyful anymore so it's nice to have these yeah. opportunities to really enjoy it
1: that's good all right uh so your talk was about neuropathic pain and um you did mention some uh, positive and negative symptoms and um which are kind of more amenable to treatment for the benefit of our listeners would you um explain a little bit about what what those are and what those mean and which uh which group of symptoms um are more amenable to treatment
2: well as i was uh, discussing it is very important to separate the positive and negative symptoms of neuropathy and to just restate it the negative symptoms are due to loss of function that is when a nerve is damaged you lose that ability to perceive sensation or the motor function of strength, balance. And so one develops numbness, weakness, ataxia. Those are deficits that aren't amenable to neuropathic pain treatment. On the other hand, the pain symptoms, the positive pain symptoms are those that make the patient say, ouch, it hurts. I use the analogy of putting your finger on a burning stove, burning, tingling, pins and needles, electric shock sensation. Those phenomena are amenable to many of the neuropathic pain treatments we have.
1: I see, okay. Um, So in in pm and I kind of struggled with this idea of You know, what we, what we own as physiatrists, um, I think people would argue neurologists, maybe own the brain and the nervous system cardiologists. Own the heart, um, who do you think owns pain, like, as a clinical area of practice and an industry.
2: It's a great question. I've actually never been asked that in that forum, but I, I like it. Um, nobody owns pain because everybody owns pain. And I would venture to say that whatever field of medicine one is in, any field, from neurology to PM&R to cardiology, that's obvious. We all see pain in those areas. Orthopedics, obviously. Rheumatology, obviously. But even dermatology or you know, OBGYN, obviously surgery. I mean, everybody sees pain and frankly, everybody sees neuropathic pain because neuropathic pain affects every specialty. Now, when you then say who is interested in pain and who takes on the obligation and responsibility of treating pain patients, then we can get a bit more restrictive because as we know, many clinicians would be delighted if they never had to deal with pain or treat a pain patient because it is difficult and it is challenging and many people are (laughs) under equipped to do it and so to your basic question who owns it i would say whoever chooses to own it
1: yes it is very prevalent everybody has pain and everybody can treat pain if you know you're you're a clinician uh, if you have the interest and the desire um So, uh, in medical education, we're trained, we're taught a very specific way to take a pain history. It has very specific questions and requires very specific answers from the patient. And often, uh, patients don't really express what they're feeling, their pain, in the way we expect to put it in our notes. And there's some kind of disconnect or some difficulty in communication and getting the history. What have you found is. Maybe a more effective way to get the information you need. To put in your note, but still allows. Patients to express what they're feeling kind of in their own way. Yeah,
2: it's not easy. Um, Part of what I covered in my talk earlier was the tools that we use to. Describe pain to quantify it, you know, of course, in the clinical trial arena, we need to quantify a measure. So that we can statistically analyze it. And that's why we have these various scales, like neuropathic pain rating scale, 0 to 10 and VAS and others now in the clinic with the patient sitting in front of you. Yes, those tools could be helpful and I use them. But we need to go beyond them to discuss not just pain, but function and suffering. And we've talked a little bit about this earlier, but one of the things I often tell patients right from the outset is, let's say I have someone with diabetic neuropathy with pain in their feet, and I ask them, well, tell me zero to 10, how bad is your pain? They say, 15 over 10, <laughs> typical answer. Say, no, you can't go above 10. So they'll say nine over 10, or 10 over 10. And I say, well, we're going to try some treatments, but I want you to know that I'm not expecting and you shouldn't expect your pain to go down to zero. We're not looking to obliterate the pain experience. That's not reasonable. It's not expected. On the other hand, what we really want to try to do is improve your function so that you can live and tolerate with whatever pain you remain with. You can go out and see your friends. You can go to the movies. You can go have dinner with your spouse on and on. And I think there's not been enough emphasis on the functional consequences of the pain experience. As opposed to just the unitary, how much does it hurt?
1: So, you're saying you would maybe ascribe a higher weight to a complaint that says, I have X number out of 10 pain, it's causing me suffering and causing me this functional loss or functional decline. As opposed to somebody that says, I have 10 out of 10 pain, but I'm, I'm, I'm fine. I'm doing everything that I can do. Exactly. I mean, look, if you look at the clinical trials of
2: response of pain to the best medicines we have. The anticonvulsants, antidepressants, other FDA approved agents we see that about 30 to 50% of patients may achieve 30 to 50% pain relief. So you think about that. That's a lot of residual patients with a lot of residual pain, even with the best agents we have, which is why I tell people, don't expect us to obliterate it. But functional benefit is the key. And yes, I always ask patients, tell me what you can and can't do in your life with the pain that you have. And that's something to track over time because hopefully that will improve. And part of that is actually not just medication. Part of that is teaching patients how to adapt, including potentially rehabilitation approaches, obviously your field stresses, rehab, as well as psychological and psychiatric approaches such Mm -hmm. as cognitive behavioral therapies and other approaches to teach patients how to psychologically adapt to their disability, which is gonna be chronic and often
1: not curable. Yes, that is true. There are uh, many things that make up a pain experience and uh, therefore there's many different things that uh, make up treatment for pain. Um, In your experience treating pain and neuropathic pain, what have you found How important is uh, expectation management from the patient's perspective and uh, things they can do at home, uh, like lifestyle, diet and sleep uh, in terms of. Treating their overall pain and getting a good outcome.
2: Yeah, there are critical points and expectations are one of the. Major challenges in medicine and what i always teach my trainees and practice myself is to keep the bar low that is i would rather underpromise than overpromise even if i really think uh, i'm working with a great treatment i don't want to tell patients this is a miracle and this is going to cure you or this is going to take your pain down from 10 to 0 because if that doesn't happen, which it usually does not, you've got a disappointed patient and they may abandon therapy and never come back. On the other hand, if you under promise and manage expectations and tell someone "Well, we're going to try this, it may not be a home run. We may get some mild benefit or even no benefit at all, but we've got many options and we've got more things we can try. Then if you're lucky enough that your treatment really works and works well, Needless to say, you've got a much happier patient than if they were expecting more. So that's expectation management. Now, as far as lifestyle issues, no question that when we talk about function, mobility, ambulation, recreational activities, work, those are critical functions in life that we try to get people back to. Obviously, in the PM and R field, that's The center of what you do is get people back to functioning. And certainly when we deal with the diabetic neuropathy population, these issues are even more important. Because we know that certainly with type 2 diabetes, obesity, metabolic syndrome are critically. Related to type 2 diabetes, and we know that diet and exercise programs can be quite effective in helping to improve glycemic control and probably improve neuropathy as well, although that data is still a bit soft.
1: All right, Um, so because pain is such a subjective uh, measure, there's no objective measure of pain yet, how important is uh, empathy in the clinician? Uh, How important is it? And uh, do you think that it is a requirement to be a good pain physician?
2: Well, I'd like to believe that empathy is important to be any clinician. True. Surgeons may disagree with me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the stereotype of the, you know, the, the hard-boiled surgeon at the best sure. side who barely talks to the patient, but that caricature aside, I, some of my best friends are empathetic surgeons. But yes, I think the connection between a physician and a patient is Extremely important, the confidence that a patient has in their clinician, I think the therapeutic relationship really does make a big difference. And frankly, we know, even in clinical trials, when patients are enrolled in the placebo arm of a trial, they get better. And why is that most likely because the therapeutic relationship, not to mention expectations can just in and of themselves improve a patient's well-being. So I think it probably goes without saying that uh, empathy is a critical part of it, and partly because trust is important. If the patient doesn't trust their doctor or have confidence in their recommendation, they probably won't follow them. And we know compliance and adherence to treatment is very spotty, and many patients leave the doc's office and, follow none of the recommendations the doctor made, including taking the meds they prescribed.
1: Yes. Okay, you mentioned briefly a capsaicin topical uh, patch in your talk uh, for neuropathic pain. Can you briefly summarize um, the use of capsaicin and uh, how it's formulated into a patch and what what it does for um, neuropathic pain patients? yeah well capsaicin is a fascinating
2: story it's obviously a chemical from nature which is uh, the active substance of the hot chili pepper and if you look at african chinese medicine indian medicine for centuries probably longer this has been a folk remedy used in many cultures as a analgesic, capsaicin applied to the surface of the skin. And it's a little paradoxical because the initial response one gets from capsaicin is pain. It burns when you put it on, like when you put a hot sauce in your mouth, you get a burn. But that burn transitions to desensitization and ultimately pain relief when applied to the skin. So some very clever Researchers over the last couple of decades have studied this compound. In fact, in 2021, the Nobel Prize was given to two scientists who studied the capsaicin TRPV1 receptor. And that kind of research has led to this particular medication, the high concentration 8% capsaicin patch known as Cutenza, which has been studied in trials that I've presented. And has been proven safe and effective in postherpetic neuralgia, as well as in diabetic neuropathic pain of the feet, and uh, we now use it very commonly with our patients
1: so what uh, what's like is the typical patient that um, responds very well to a capsaicin patch? Well,
2: generally speaking, it's the patient with painful diabetic neuropathy affecting the feet patients coming in reporting burning tingling electric sensation contact sensitivity of the feet which can be a very disabling problem and there are very few contraindications to using this patch because there's no systemic effects it's purely a topical and the only real warning and contraindication is broken skin, such as a skin ulcer or infection. But otherwise, virtually any patient, like I've described, is a candidate for treatment. And frankly, as time goes on, I think there's reason to believe that this might be first-line therapy. I don't see any reason to subject a patient to daily oral meds, like anticonvulsants or antidepressants, certainly not opioids, in which they have many systemic side effects with limited efficacy when we have a topical that might work as well without those systemic effects.
1: And have you, is there a difference in efficacy on the patch versus the topical cream? Oh, absolutely. So the creams and gels that are available for capsaicin
2: are very low concentration. They're 0.025% to 0.075%. And those are available over the counter in the pharmacies. On the other hand, this proprietary capsaicin patch is eight percent. That's 100 times more potent. And that's why it only needs to be given for a 30-minute application once every three months, as opposed to gels and creams, which need to be put on several times every day.:
1: uh, once every three months.: Yeah. Wow, okay. Um, so what happens to the skin? Uh, what, what is responsible for the sustained effect?
2: Well, the mechanism, which I discussed a little bit earlier today is a transient. Well, let's back up a moment. Initially, there's binding of the capsaicin to the receptor, the so-called trip V1 receptor. That receptor Controls a channel, an ion channel, that transmits action potentials in nociceptive small nerve fibers, particularly C fibers. And that TRPV1 binding of capsaicin initially sensitizes the receptor with initial pain response, but then it desensitizes and defunctionalizes the receptor, associated with degeneration of the epidermal nerve fibers that degenerate to a large degree by one week after application and then regenerate by 12 weeks. And so you've got this transient degeneration or regeneration that is in parallel with the pain response. There's still some questions about the mechanism that we
1: don't understand, but that's
2: at least what we do know.
1: So are you... uh... Dr Simpson, are you a hot pepper aficionado? (laughs) I do
2: like I do like hot spicy food. Yes. Although I must admit that. You know, when I do some of my international travel and go to places like Thailand. And we have Thai physicians that come to train with me every so often and they invite me to Bangkok or. Other cities, and they say, do you want to eat like an American or like a Thai person? and I'll say, well, no, I'm, I'm gonna be a good sport. I'm gonna eat like a Thai person and they bring me my uh-huh. food. After two bites, my head feels like it's gonna explode. Uh-huh. <laughs> and actually there's a good reason for that this is because when you habitually eat these hot spicy foods, you desensitize your capsaicin receptors in the oral mucosa so you can tolerate it better. That's the reason why people can live in those cultures and okay. eat so much hot spicier things than we do in the States. <laughs> Although here in Texas, maybe you've got more desensitized people with all the Tabasco that you eat and hot sauce. I,
1: yeah, I think there's a huge following uh, across the country. So, I, I personally had uh, uh, an exposure to Carolina Reaper pepper. Um uh-huh. it- It is. I think it's the hottest pepper in the world. I don't know the Scoville units. It's like 1.2, 1.5 up to over two. I think you're right.
2: In fact, (laughs) I have to modify my slide because I think it is hotter than the ghost pepper.
1: I think it is. Yeah. So uh, somebody gave me some and uh, I wasn't foolish enough to eat the whole thing like I've seen people do on the internet. I cut a small piece of the pepper flesh, not the seeds or the pith and I I ate it and uh, I survived. Um I survived. I didn't drink any milk. But um what was very noticeable to me was after the fury kind of faded away, I felt really good. Really? It's
2: interesting.
1: Great. <laughs> and I couldn't explain it. I wasn't in pain before. I wasn't suffering before, but there was a noticeable effect. I felt really good for some reason. Not it didn't last 3 months, but it um,
2: yeah, well, you know, there's this interesting discussion between the pain, pleasure. Continuum, not to Uh say we're all masochists, (laughs) but the fact is there is something about pain. That may excite the endogenous endorphin endorphin system. And in fact, have a transition to a pleasure response. And so who knows what happened with you, but that's not an unusual phenomenon that you, that you report.
1: It's not. And okay. Right. And
2: that's probably one of the reasons people love hot sauces. I mean, you think about it, you're putting something in your mouth that basically burns, mm-hmm. but people enjoy the sensation, you know, it reminds me a little bit of people who eat that. Um, what is that Japanese fish that has poison in it?
1: Fugu. 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 Uh, To chartotoxin, it's a puffer fish. Yeah.
2: Yeah, the puffer fish. And in fact, they're Japanese chefs that are trained to provide just enough. That's right. In which you get paresthesias and localized burning and so forth, but not enough to kill you. So there's that fine line there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Living right on the edge. I think it takes like 10 years to to become a chef with that. Exactly. Yeah. You're right. Oh, my goodness. All right, Dr. Simpson, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk to us today. We really enjoyed your grand rounds talk and, you know, we wish you the best. Uh, uh, traveling back to New York and would love to see you uh, in Houston uh, another time.
2: Absolutely. I'd sure. love to come back and uh, see you all in person. So it's been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you very much.
2: Thank you. Sala. Good thank luck you. to you as well. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye.
0: would like to make it clear that we make every effort to broadcast correct information. We will double-check facts and assertions, but we do ask our listeners to realize that medicine is a constantly changing science and an art. One physician may have an entirely different way of doing things from another, and any views expressed are solely those of the person expressing them. We welcome any comments, suggestions, and correction of errors. We do not accept any money, services, or sponsorship otherwise from pharmaceutical, supplement, or device companies. By listening to this podcast or reading this blog, you agree not to use this podcast or blog as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you may be treating. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog. Under no circumstances shall McGovern Medical School, any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog, or any employees, associates, or affiliates of UT Health be held responsible for damages arising from use of this podcast or blog. We are here to stimulate the dialogue. We are here to get the wheels spinning. We are here to spark new questions in the field of medicine. Thank you for listening.